0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Stand Down. And I am extremely happy to be here with a great friend of mine, Jay Mays. Welcome, Jay. What's up? How are you, Daniel? I'm doing great. This is a, a podcast about stand up comedy uh, and the many hilarious, wonderful people that have to walk away from the pursuit of stand up comedy for any number of wonderful and painful and everything in between reasons. I know you from doing stand-up back in Miami, Florida, probably at this point 10 years ago or more. uh, More? Yeah, more, right? And you started coming to my show Casa de Ha Ha, I made you one of my house comics, you were there every month, and then you had the Have Nots comedy where you were producing a lot of great shows down there, and we were happy to work together, all kinds of stuff. Um, This seems like another chapter in our lives almost by now, but you you have it much further in the rear view window than most of my guests so far as someone who has kind of been through it already. Um, I know you were listening to some of the earlier episodes and you were like a little heavy here. Don't I, let me lighten things up a bit. So <laughs> so go ahead and lighten. Right. Lighten.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh it's been a, about a decade. What did I stop maybe five, six years ago now? Probably mm. sounds about right. Um and I think for me it wasn't so much a choice to quit but it was there was other priorities that took the time away I guess so it wasn't so much oh I'm going to quit stand up comedy and I'm going to quit it and do nothing it was really getting married it was the birth of my daughter it was all these things that made that lifestyle no longer um no longer doable I guess. And then you have these forks in the road and you say, okay, if I decide to go to this open mic that doesn't start till 11 PM and I have a few drinks and I have a great set and I'm flying after a great set and I don't get home till one. And then I need another couple hours to come down. Mm -hmm. How am I going to wake up at five or six with my daughter who needs me, who wants to be with me and then perform for my job. Right. And so it wasn't so much that I decided to quit comedy, but I had to prioritize other things Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that made it a lot easier is just making the choices to fill up my life. It wasn't easy for a lot of years. There was obviously really a, an empty spot there that I think a lot of comedians mm. can identify with. And a lot of comedians are probably going through right now, right? Not being able to get on stage. Yes. Uh, but it was, it was more choosing, choosing more positive, choosing more light than really walking away from comedy. Uh, I guess is how I like to look at it.
0: Right. So, so you really did just see. A number of options, and you're like, I can put my time here, I can put my time here, but something's going to suffer, something's going to wither a little bit. And you know, had you ever considered just, I'll be a worse father. You know, is that an option? Was that ever a, or I'll be a worse, uh, I'll be a worse (laughs) worker at my job. That's that's an option that many comedians take. You know, practical.
1: Yeah. No. And on that, let me tell you. When I started comedy back, I think it was 05, like something crazy. I was single. I only had my dog to take care of and I did have a job with flexibility, right. but I remember other comedians in the, uh, in the community saying things like, you know, I'm never going to work. I'm never going to get a day job because that's selling out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, don't you have responsibilities? Don't you have bills to pay? And then I'm not going to name names, but there was other comedians that actually did have families that made the choice to not prioritize their wife and not prioritize their kids for this pursuit of comedy. Mm-hmm. And even though I wasn't in that situation, that never, that never really rubbed me right. That never really sat well with me. Like, like, I think that you can keep your obligations, keep your responsibilities, be true to the art. Mm. and still be a comedian all at the same time. I don't think it needed to be that drastic, like I have to be a shitty, uh, a shitty worker, I have to be a shitty husband, I mm-hmm. have to be a shitty wife, I have to be a shitty dad or, or mom. I, right. I really don't think that that's, yeah, I think there's room for all of it, but you do see it a lot, that all or nothing mentality in the comedy scene, or at least I did coming up in, in Denver.
0: Sure, so you think it is possible but is it just like such a rare balance to be able to achieve balancing all of those things and you decided that just for the the benefit of all everything else that you would remove stand-up from the equation so that you could give that time to family and work and everything else?
1: I want to break up what you said into two things. So for me personally, I didn't quit comedy because I didn't have time. So So your first question was, do I think you could do both? Yes. Do I think that's super hard? Yes. Do I understand? Yes. But if you look at the average comedian that might be getting a paid gig here or there, they have plenty of time. He or she has plenty of time to to have the throughput of other things. I don't know any comedian that really has the discipline to sit down and write for eight hours a day. And there's like, there's just no room for anything else because I'm writing. Mm-hmm. That may be occasionally, but I, I still believe that there is bandwidth in the daytime because let's face it. You don't, you don't get on stage till the sun goes down. So that leaves a ton of time. Um, for me personally though, the reason why I quit was after I committed to my wife and after my daughter was born, I didn't find my jokes funny anymore, right? So mm. I, I came up more traditionally a blue comedian, um, a shock comic with a very inauthentic persona where I knew, I knew the joke that was gonna make people laugh. It wasn't how I felt as a person. It wasn't what I believed. My jokes certainly weren't things that I was doing in my real life, mm-hmm. but I knew it would get a cheap laugh, like a shock jock. Hey, this will get a laugh. Yeah. So I'd write these jokes that were dirty and blue, and I'd get up and I'd get my laughs, right? Because mostly I'm at dive bars anyway, and stories don't pay off in dive bars, right? Stories pay mm-hmm. off when you're, when you're that next echelon. So I'm bringing these dirty jokes, and then I'm like, okay, but I, I am in a committed relationship now. I do want to be a good husband, and I'm a dad, of a daughter. You know, (laughs) these jokes really aren't that funny to me anymore. And I think that was it. So it was like, okay, Jay, for seven years or so you got on stage, you got cheap laughs with an inauthentic persona with blue jokes and now your life is evolving. So I had two choices. I could write about, find my voice, which I never really did. I could find my voice and write new material that fit my life now. Or I could just say, hey, let's just put that on hold because that doesn't feel good anymore. And I put it on hold and I did miss it. But as you know, things evolved from there into what stand-up comedy would be for me in the future. Uh, But it was more the content than even the time or even the hangovers or even the lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. It was, I just physically didn't find my jokes funny anymore.
0: Right, right, that dissonance. I mean, that's a big thing in comedy where after certain amount of years in it, you start to outgrow your jokes, whether you realize it or not. And whether it's all your jokes or just a few, you felt it and you have a very clear picture of it now. Did you back then when you were going through it, was it as clear when you were kind of figuring all this out? Was the decision as easy to make as it seems now? Or was it more of a labor like, ah, I got to double down or you know, whatever it was? Or did, it, did you yeah, always yep. be able to have that calculated decision-making about it?
1: No, I, I, um, I, I was confused. I was lost. I was frustrated. I never really got tremendous traction as a comedian. Um, I, remember, <laughs> I remember the first time I left Denver, uh, Chris Charpentier, um, he came up. He started right after I did. So we were close. And he was roasting me on my way out. And uh, mm. I don't know why, I'll never forget this. It was so just perfect. We were at Club 404 and he was giving me a roast on my way out of Denver to move to Miami. And he walks up and he says, Jay Mays, how long you been doing comedy, man? And I was like, seven years. And he goes, seven years, seven solid minutes. <laughs> just like, uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but that was it, right? Right. I had my, my go to blue jokes. I knew I wasn't getting you know long enough sets, more than 10, 15 minutes. Seven years, seven solid minutes. But the reason why that hurts, like all roast do, is because he was really right, right? Mm. I mean, never really got that traction. Um, and what the jokes I was writing, they just weren't real. They weren't real for me, they weren't authentic, they weren't my voice. And I right. think that's why I started getting ultimately frustrated, absolutely.
0: And you, I mean, the audience can tell, I think, that when there is that disconnection, whether they realize it or not, they know something's off or something just could be better, you know? Um,
1: Anthony Jezelnik, in my opinion, is one of the only comedians that has broken up to that upper echelon telling totally inauthentic jokes. Now I'm not saying Jezelnik does or doesn't believe that. I don't know him personally, Mm -hmm. but he's one of the only ones that is able to make a career out of shock, shocking jokes, because he's a great writer, because he knows what he's doing. But Mm. none of that is probably really authentic to him. But he's able to do it. I I would say that was more of the vibe, where like, how do I be shocking? How do I say dirty things that are funny? Because I can engineer it, right? I was smart enough to engineer a joke. But none of it really had anything to do with me. He, on the other hand, embraced that persona, he went with it, you know, so he's been able to do that. But if you really think about Successful, su- successful comedians. I think they're they're more authentic. They're storytellers, and they're talking about things that they truly believe that happen in their life is how they get their voice and their traction. Cheslenick is one of the only ones that's been able to not do that and still gain a, a massive following. Uh, what mm. do you think about that?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, I yeah, I can. I can imagine that he's not actually someone who delights in the murder of babies. Like that's not a hard Co- correct idea come on, to hold. Come on. I mean, his jokes are right, a- abhorrent, right. but you can tell. It's about the joke craft and he's created this like sly, evil genius, arrogant character. And and it's all balanced so perfectly. Whereas if any one of those things is off, immediately I'm gonna hate the person or they're gonna be that douchey shock jock bro comedian that you kind of fear you were at your worst. and no one likes to see um and and yeah on that note like you know you said you you put your head down or you know you did comedy for seven years and kind of didn't get any traction do you think that's something that a lot of comedians can relate with especially I think after the five-year mark where you start to kind of like you've developed some kind of persona whether it's your true voice or not and you've got a vehicle but you're it's the plateau kind of place and Am I going to go anywhere? You're starting to learn the harsh realities of show business and what you might have to do to get to the next level. If you're that lucky, you can think that far ahead. For those people, should, should they stop? Should they go? I mean, some of them, can can they, is it they just have to get to the end of that plateau and then they can break through? Or statistically, those are the people, the longer you don't get any traction or you need to either stop or change or do something different.
1: Two things that you just reminded me of. First one is Seth Godin has an awesome easy book you could probably read in one or two sittings called The Dip. Um, And The Dip says, if you can't be the best, go find something else to do. I don't Mm. believe that that's necessarily the case for a lot of comedians. I don't want to say, hey, if you're not going to be the best, you got to quit. But The Dip, if you're a comedian that's struggling right now, or doing anything that you're struggling at right now, the dip will help, will give you a lot of clarity. And that's by Seth Godin. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing I would ask most comedians, and again, I'm going back, not into a professional circuit, I'm going back into more of the amateur circuit here. But if you really could, could get personal with each of these comedians and say, what's your why? Why are you really getting on stage? And when you start breaking down that why, not just one why, but why, why, why. So if you get like three whys deep with each of these comedians, and again, this is a terrible generalization, but they're either after some weird fame for some reason, they're, they're, um, enjoy a voice where they don't feel like they have a voice in a one-on-one in the real world. They get a voice with the microphone or number three. And this was for me, um, you're getting on stage to fill some type of emptiness with validation and laughter. Mm. Uh, What was it, Krusty the Clown from The Simpsons? There's a hole in my heart that can only be filled by laughter from strangers. Uh, And I think for me, stand-up comedy was this novel thing where I was like, could I get on stage and make people laugh? And then once I figured out, well, here's a formula, I can do it, right? Your first two minutes, you're like, oh my God, people laughed. I was on stage. Like, (laughs) that'll give you just a year or two in and of itself, right? (laughs) Right. Of just like, Oh my God, I'm I'm on stage. But then when I really started analyzing, why am I on stage? It was some type of validation, um, in my twenties. And again, we don't need to go too deep on what that was, but I wanted to be validated and that was happening on stage. Um, I've been a salesman for 20, 25 years now, and I don't sell this way anymore. I'm more of a consultant and a coach now. Uh, but early in my sales career, every closed one, every contract that I closed was a little bit of validation. So I would ask all these comedians that don't have an authentic voice or ha- have hit a plateau, like, what is their why? What is mm-hmm. it really? And here's what I want to say: if they really took the self, the time for self intros- introspection, they would find ways to fill that hole or whatever they're trying to do with stand-up comedy with something else that they might actually get traction with. That being said, there's going to be a lot of comedians out there that are going to struggle for 10, 20 years, and then they're going to hit it and they will be big. So I don't want to discourage anyone and say, stop doing comedy. Mm -hmm. But you and I both know, you and I both know there's a lot of comedians in the amateur circuit that do not deserve stage time to hop on with the microphone. And if you really looked at what their why was, they could probably fill up that, whatever that emptiness somewhere is somewhere else. That
0: is advice many comedians could do to hear for sure. Um, so even though you, comedy's in the rear view for you, you've still kept elements of comedy. You've kept a relationship with comedy years later. For, for those who don't know, Jay is my partner in a, in a venture called Pitch Lab where we go and we talk to everywhere from businesses to to scientists, to students, and we just kind of help them incorporate a couple comedy techniques into feeling better about pitching, presenting, speaking in public. And it's been a fun, really rewarding kind of tangent of stand-up comedy for me. You've, you're definitely the architect behind it. So was that a natural jump to incorporating comedy into your business, world life, or was that just an eventual inkling that you had
1: to to address and scratch an itch down the line? Yeah, awesome question. So for me, I did a hard stop with comedy where when I decided to stop, I didn't keep, like you hear hear about Rodney Dangerfield, when he quit, he'd still be thinking of jokes and throw them in and fill up a duffel bag full of jokes. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, when I stopped comedy, I stopped. I wasn't listening to new albums. I wasn't writing jokes. I wasn't doing anything. The closest thing I was doing is I'd still get on Twitter and laugh at a couple comedians jokes on Twitter and maybe try to send out a joke or two here or there. But when I did that hard stop, what I realized about comedy for me personally, that was lacking is, and let's just take uh, maybe, maybe Lewis black, but definitely Chris rock. When you see these comedians and, and Bill Hicks, even, They're getting on stage and they're comedians, but they're not talking about dick and poop jokes, right? Dick and poop jokes for a Mm -hmm. laugh. Hey, I'm a clown. I'm a jester, everybody. I hope you laughed. I'm out of here. I started respecting more and more the comedians that were making people laugh and giving some type of message. And I thought to myself, if comedy ever comes back around for me, I want to be saying something of value, whether, and I don't want to say political, but whether it's something to help people change the way they think, change the way they feel, Mm. or just help people think. Um, And so I knew that my days of being a comedian that was just getting up there and telling dirty jokes and yay, let's go. and, And there's no value. I knew that if I ever got on stage again, there had to be some type of value. And then as more time went on, I said, what I miss about comedy, I miss that energy from being in a room face-to-face when things are vibing. I said, if I ever get, on, get, get back on stage in any form, I want to be saying something of value and make it, be making people laugh. And when you, you just brought up Pitch Lab, I thought Pitch Lab was perfect because it was still scratching that itch where I could go and get stage time, but I was educating and entertaining at the same time. And the best part is Pitch Lab doesn't start at 11 p.m. in a dive bar, right? (laughs) right. Pitch Lab Lab is in the day. So uh, it fit for a lot of reasons. But um, it gave me purpose to get back in front of rooms uh, without having to, you know, have a bunch of drinks in the middle of the night and, you know, get on stage at the dive bar where, what do we talk about, Daniel, where the, the bikers are shooting pool and they didn't they didn't realize there was going to be comedy. They're there watching anyway. the finals.
0: there, yes. You are Sorry. fighting up a, a stream made of molasses, just swimming, and it's great training for comedy. But after a while, you've learned the lesson that it has to teach.
1: And and um, okay. So wait, wait, I want to ask you because we're going to do a reverse. All right. Oh boy. So you said as comedy is now coming in your rearview mirror, right? And and as you're walking away from comedy and it nourishes you. So what are your thoughts specifically on the education you feel? So, so you have these skills as a comedian that you don't even realize are skills, right? Until you <laughs> get in mm-hmm. front of a room of people, not to teach them to be funny, right? We talk about that all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Give me, that, give me your, your view on that, but I don't believe that you could really teach funny. But you realize that you're actually a superhero to these people because of the stage time that you've clocked. What does that feel like when you're breaking down all these things you've learned all these successes and failures Mm -hmm. and you're giving these techniques to business people? Like, tell me how uh, you said it nourishes you, but where is that coming from?
0: It is. I mean, I want to make sure that it's not just me being able to scratch my comedy itch, in a way that removes the fear and pressure of comedy, or in some low-pressure stakes where I get to be the funny guy and no one else does, like it's definitely not about that. Where it could be with people in my shoes, but I, it does. It makes me realize, like, yes, you've you've come a really long way from being like a scared funny kid in the back of the room. You can learn from any art form if you talk to someone who's done it for a while, and you can get. You can learn from their mistakes and their failures. And that's always been my favorite way to learn is by secondhand, not doing it my damn self.
1: There's a train of thought called plus equals and minus uh, in the world. And, I, and I, what I like about that is what they mean. And, and this happens with UFC fighters. This could happen with comedians. This could happen with any profession. But if you're, you're here, you're in the center, you want to learn from people that are better than you. Mm. You want to collaborate and work with people at your skill set. And you also want to be able to teach people that know less than you. And there's always going to be somebody that knows less than you, but that's not only how you Sometimes. become a master. <laughs> not always. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what I mean you know, not going to become a Sometimes master. Sometimes there's
0: literally no one who knows less than me, but yeah. You're I you.
1: But you get the point. Then you mm-hmm. walk in and these you're people learning are learning three different really... ways at all times. You got it. Three so courses. I think what pitch lab does for you is helps you see that, Oh, there's, I did learn a lot, right? Sometimes you don't know how much, you know, until you're in front of somebody that's like, I know nothing, let me know. And I, and I mm. like to see that part of you. The other thing, and I want to tell this story real quick, and you can color it in. But the, the, the time that I've respected you the most as a professional and as an entertainer was we were downtown outside of AOR. We were going into AOR for a pretty high stakes pitch lab. You pull up First thing you do is lock your keys in the car. Now, locking your keys in the car for me is like a panic-inducing thing. I'm going to get anxiety. I got to fix it immediately. And you took it in stride. Like, I'll work that out later. And you just let it go. Then on your way into AOR, if I'm telling the story and I'll let you color it in, you're walking through an intersection and a guy jacks you in the stomach for no reason. So you're assaulted. So you lock your keys in the car. You're then assaulted. You continue after the assault to walk into AOR. You're kind of like a little shaken up. Tell me the story. And it's like 15 minutes to show time. And I'm like, I didn't know whether to be like, oh, Daniel, are you okay? Or like rub some dirt in it, you're fine. I didn't even know how to yeah. react.
0: You were more flustered than I was and, when I told okay,
1: let me, let me finish it though. Here's the best part. I'm like, gee, I'm like, oh, geez, please let Daniel be in fighting shape because this was an important engagement, right, in front of an important client. I'm like, please let him be all right. I introduce you. You walk up with swagger into this conference room filled with 20, 30 people. You took a sip of their free beer and said, thank you for allowing me to be here and get drunk at your place of work. and it was an explosion of laughter and you never looked back like, like the ability. And and that's what I consider a professional is Conan O'Brien, all these late night guys that no matter what happened before that show, five nights a week, you got to turn it on. It doesn't Hmm. matter if you're feeling depressed. It doesn't matter if you just got in a fight. It doesn't matter if you just got in a car accident, it's showtime. And that was one of the coolest ways that I've seen anyone take whatever just happened and when it was showtime you were there you were on and i told you that was one of your best ones you were even coming of, after me a little bit you <laughs> were even, i got you scrappy were even coming after me you got it yeah all
0: right so, <laughs> so yeah, tell I me the story it, how did it, you get punched it was yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you man. yeah it was one of my best ones uh and yeah i locked my locked my keys in the car had, and my shirt was in the car, so that's
1: right. I needed you didn't even my have a shirt.
0: I needed my overshirt uh, to to that's look right. professional. Uh, <laughs> I just had the t-shirt on, wanted the collar. And so I'm I'm walking down the street looking for a stick that I can grab because my window's cracked, and I can shove the stick in and lift the shirt off of the back of my seat and fish it through. And so I'm just kind of casually walking just on the sidewalk, looking around, and this very uh rough and tumble young man uh looked like he's been partying pretty damn hard just walks by and then just shoots me just a tight little gut shot and just keeps walking like he did nothing like he just kicked a pebble out of the way or something
1: no and message just, there was no meshes involved struck.
0: nothing at all just just like he just picked up a piece of <laughs> like a Westworld pamphlet or something just casual punch this man walk down the street and I, I didn't i was like 50 reactions were like fighting to get through my head all at once i'm like intense anger what the fuck? what are you doing do i just run and sidekick this man in the back of the neck because the right. old bruce, bruce lee in me is bubbling up and i'm just like what the hell He's like, Did you get hurt? What? Did you tense up? I tensed up, luckily, which I uh, yeah, I you know, I had my old martial arts training. I don't know what it was, whatever. Or he didn't, you know, he didn't give me a big old wind up haymaker here. It was there was <laughs> You would have seen that. To, you would have seen that. I would have seen that, and <laughs> a small punch doesn't have enough time to build that momentum unless right. you're Bruce Lee and you <laughs> got that one inch punch. But uh yeah, it didn't hurt. So it was more just like the the shock of everything. And he was like, What? I'm like, you just you just do that to people? He's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "That's a weird way to make friends." And he's like, "Bring it!" And he just walks around the corner. And I was—that like, was it, huh? What? The? Yeah, I went, fished my shirt out, put it on, had a beer, told you the story, and uh, and yeah, we went, we we had a good good set for those uh, like business company people. Um,
1: It was awesome. It was a lesson.
0: It was definitely a lesson. Because it's if, you know, how who am I to teach people how to master their emotions or how to control their psyche for high stress events if I myself can't, you know, handle some street scuffle. But yeah. What a weird what a weird time that was. You know, we could talk pitch lab stories all day, and maybe we will sometime because it's real fun. But um to get back, let's get a, let's get a little – you're too well-adjusted. Where are the regrets? What's the – everyone else has a little smoldering regret. Is it something that, like, if, if you could give yourself advice as a starting comic, would it be different? Or if you could go back and say, hey, just skip this whole thing. Don't even get on stage. Don't bother. You can do something else instead. Any kind of regrets or, or ways you could have seen it shaking out differently in the, in the multiverse?
1: That's good. That's good. Um, <clears throat> make no mistake. In those first seven years, I really wanted it to work. Like I, I was just as like, I, I, I you know, I want to start opening for comics. I want to try, like, make no mistake. I was not like, well, I'm just doing this, but I know like I was in it in the mm-hmm. beginning. I was in it. I just had no path. I would say my two regrets. One, I've already said, <clears throat> instead of this inauthentic persona where I'm just telling dirty shocking jokes to make people laugh, Why didn't I mine my personal life more? Why didn't I? It's kind of back to that validation. I guess here I'll just articulate it like this: Why didn't I take the time to find my voice? Probably because I was scared to fail. Hmm. Do you see what I mean by? I know 100 percent. You mean I feel the same thing. By finding your voice, you have to fail a bunch and be like, "Well, that didn't. That didn't get laughs, but that was me on stage." Mm -hmm. I never did that. I said, "Here's my coat of armor." which yes. is fake jokes that I know I have I have engineered to make laughs so I knew how to write a joke to get a laugh and that's my protection that's mm-hmm. my protection I'll never get on stage and bomb I was more afraid of bombing so I would bring fake stuff on stage than being authentic and exploring my voice so I don't want to call myself a coward but there you go I wish I was stronger I wish I wish I I I was I was more- Honest and vulnerable. Yeah. To to get up and do that. And number two, and this is no joke at all, I wish I would have tried more comedy sober. And that doesn't mean I was like a raging lunatic, but I would have a few drinks. Mm -hmm. I never got on stage totally, totally sober. Now, I'm a dad, right? I barely Mm -hmm. drink anymore. I'm totally You just do it in the
0: car before we go in.
1: (laughs) No, before Pitch Lab, that's not even an option. So I guess what my point is all those years on stage, I could have been working on my stage fright. And instead I'm like, Hey, let's just have some drinks. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I actually, it's funny, all this, this, this up comedy cred I had, and I still had to start from zero when I started pitch lab learning how to get through stage fright, sober all over again, all over it. None of it stuck because a 10 p.m. mic after, after three or four drinks, who cares? That's not beating stage fright.
0: Right. It's not you were beating a, stage fright. You were a drunk mm-hmm. warrior in a suit of armor. You got now it. you're like you got Jay it. Mays.
1: You got it. Take it or leave it in a business. We're in, we're in inside organizations, right? Inside conference rooms that we cannot be drinking, right? Mm-hmm. We're there to teach. We're there to provide value. Right. You're not gonna be able to drink and, and get that stuff done. So those are my, my two things.
0: Those are so juicy and you've, you've got such a knack for like turning your points into advice for others. Now it's such a, of like distilling your points for consumption. It's fantastic. It's a great skill you've honed through, through all this stuff. Thank you. Uh, so if someone asks you now, are you a comedian?
1: Yeah. Um, it's funny. Should be. It's like, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like being asked, are you an artist? Like JD Lopez hit <laughs> me on his, are you an artist? Yeah. Like, we're all comedians. We're all artists, right? It's like, uh, what, what was the funny metaphor? Um, you know, everybody's a photographer now with an iPhone, right? And everybody's a comedian with a Twitter account, right? right? We're, we're, we're all, we're all artists. We're all comedians. Do I consider myself a comedian? Yes. Um, and I consider myself a comedian, yes, because I did put in the work. I did log the hours. I, I, I had 10 years worth of experience on stage mm-hmm. and I, I was a comedy producer, like you said, with the have-nots. I, so I understand the business. I understand what it takes to be successful. However, in the circles of people that still remember me, it's kind of hacked to call myself a comedian because I never really made it, right? I made, I made 20 bucks from scuba Steve you know, <laughs> for, a, for a quick set. Um, sure. I, Here and there, so it's almost inside
0: comedy and outside comedy. You you got got it. You
1: got it. You got it. But yes, I I consider myself a comedian because it wasn't like, well, I did this experiment and I got on stage three times and I wrote a bunch of like I did this for years. Right now, I was never great. I never got traction. I'll be honest with you, I, I was never awesome. But yeah, I consider myself a former. What do they call it? Recovering. I'm a recovering recovering right there's like, a, comedian. there's like an
0: asterisk if like yeah, yeah I did comedy but if you want to go deeper we'll talk about it but
1: but yes I there's a lot of people that know me intimately would say yeah Jay was a comedian so was a, com- <laughs>
0: was a comedian right there not is go. a comedian it's so it was, fun was, how that correct. gets so blurry correct. right so here's something I ask all my guests uh when you were in the in the middle of doing comedy, in the peak of it, and some new person found out in your life. What would you say when they ask,
1: "Tell me a joke"? Oh my God!
0: It's not even an yeah. ask, actually. They're like demanding it, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, in the beginning of my career, I would always fall for it, and then I would say something super dirty, and it was like totally inappropriate. And I was like, "Ooh." <laughs>
0: Record um, scratch,
1: and everyone looks around. That's it. Um, but no, I know you're not supposed to do a comedians hate that and you're not supposed to do that. That's why I do that to you on pitch lab all the time when I introduce <laughs> you and I say, tell me a joke, right? Just enough uh, to be. and two, we don't need to go into it on your podcast here, but you know, I love me some cheesy dad jokes now. Mm-hmm. You know, I oh, love Don't that. get it started. We're opening up a can of worms. Uh, but yeah, no, I never really had anything clean, anything that's a go to. Um, and yes, that's very, very obnoxious. So hate if you're yeah. listening and you're not a comedian. Never ask a comedian to tell you a joke or make you laugh. Don't do it.
0: (laughs) Amen. So comedy is going through a lot of changes right now. A lot of media is going through changes. Shows being (laughs) delayed and experimenting with other types of filming and all kinds of stuff. And the biggest thing I'm seeing now is, you know, comedy is trying to make the jump to Zoom and to online video recording and redoing shows in this totally new platform. And it's been funny and very painful as well to watch a lot of comedians struggle with reformulating their entire act for a completely different scenario. Things you wouldn't have, the way you look at crowds, the way you pace things, the lack of audience reception, and and hearing the laughter. Um, You've been working on kind of figuring out like, the techniques and tips and stuff for that. So I would love for you to share some with everyone out there cause we all need to hear it.
1: Yep. Um, well, first off it's not easy and it's not a one-to-one, right? So being in a room and being on camera are two different things. And I've been working on how to get good on camera for four or five years now. Uh, two people that have helped me tremendously. Number one is Mike Kilcoin and the other one is Julie Hansen. Um, her handles acting for sales. Um, but those two people helped me tremendously along the way. And I'll give you four quick tips, uh, three tips on how to look and, and feel more engaging on the camera. And the fourth one is if you're actually running like a zoom, if you're a salesperson or you're leading some type of group, group of people. So the first one is, and this is an obvious one, but you got to get your camera high enough where the, the camera's not looking up at you. So right now I got a Zappos box. Doesn't get, it doesn't get more bootstrapped than you, that. You but got this, some,
0: yeah, you got some elevators in your heels. You got some it.
1: So you lifts. need this, so, so the camera's coming right at you. So do what you can so the camera's almost looking down at you or at least right at you. Number two, you need a good light source in front of you. And what I mean is right now, I have a big window in front of me and I have literally tried, are oh, you lifting it?
0: I'm lifting my camera to take. <laughs> take use of these tips immediately.
1: Okay, I have literally tried and looked at my, I've looked at my camera in a ton of different places. Your face is going to look different. The shadows are going to make you look different. Get your main light source in front of you. Again, that sounds simple. It's not. If you have a too strong of a light source coming from all different ways, you're going to look bad. So get your light source in front of you. Number three, And this is the best one to be engaging and this is the hardest one that i'm still trying to crack if i'm look at my eyes right now if i'm looking at you where do my eyes look like they're looking a little to the right for me yep but i'm looking at you on my screen
0: now where do i
1: you got it Mm. now where am i looking right now
0: at me in
1: the camera but i'm not i'm looking above our boxes I'm looking right above them into blackness. Right. But I know to look above that while I'm talking to you. And I know to look at that while I'm listening to you, not because it's helping me, because it's actually hurting me.
0: Right, to not because, see my real-time reactions.
1: Correct. So I, it's to my detriment because I lose reading your body language. But at the same time, it's actually helping you feel like I'm connecting with you and I'm looking at you and I'm actually listening to you. It, you that just described the modern day spotlight.
0: It's the spotlight. Exactly. It blinds exactly. you. you, you know, it re- removes the amount of information you can take in visually, but it looks good when you're not doing this all the time. Like you you covering your it. hand over your eyes looks weird. You can always tell a new comedian when they cover the spotlight, unless they're like trying to just see someone in the crowd.
1: Yeah, so for me to, to sit here and look, I want to look at your eyes and I want to connect with you, but I can't, I gotta, I gotta look this way. So Very that's important. Uh, what what is that? Two or three? That's that was three. three.
0: And now then the, the first one to... is
1: yeah. For any business people, anybody that's leading, um, what you don't want to do. And I see this all the time, especially in the world of sales is all the people you're presenting to are going to go on mute and just watch. They want a real passive experience and you'll say stuff like, does that make sense? Does anybody have any questions? Uh, and everybody's on mute. Nobody's oh, going to answer uh, you. Me, uh, no, 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 no. They, they, won't won't right. they won't even reach for it. They won't even reach for it. So, what you want to do is if you want to be more interactive during your Zoom or during your video conference, I would say something like, Daniel, how did I articulate that one?
0: Okay, oh he's talking to me. Oh, <clears throat> excuse me. I-, I liked it very much. Mute. You
1: got it. Does everyone agree with Daniel, or does anyone have a view different than Daniel's?
0: Right. You, you have so to by, c- create the space for interaction instead of just assuming it.
1: it. you got it. Beth, Beth, how am I doing? Am I hitting all the points that I should be hitting Beth? Mm. Beth comes off a mute. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Anybody, everybody agree with Beth? So these are some of the things where you just have to be a little bit more deliberate because nice. in a room, when we're in a room together, I could say, does anybody have a question? And then just look you in the eyes and you know, I'm, I'm picking you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Zoom in these video conferences—it's not like that. And there is such thing—I don't know if you read about this, Daniel—but there's such thing called Zoom fatigue. There's hmm. a new video conference fatigue because you're always being looked at. Not only are you processing your own face, oh. but you're processing six faces, and you're—you feel like and you're your being own looked visual at.
0: image. People are right. Like these, are, imagine not having a stand-up brain where you've had to get over the, your voice and your image and all of the physical things. Right, having to deal with that all at once. How interesting. That's hitting hitting non-performers pretty hard, huh?
1: Exhausting. It is exhausting. It's taxing on the brain. Um, and for me even right now, I want to do as much as I can to build up my muscle without exhausting myself. I'm very conscious Hmm. that I don't want to be on zoom all day long. It, It really, it really strings me out.
0: Right. Oh, that's a, that's another great tip. It's almost like how they, uh, when you have a group of people, you need someone to call nine one one. You don't say, Hey, call nine one one. You have to be like, you specific person, call nine one one. Or even the, just the old crowd work technique where among the crowd you'll kind of make friends with one Beth in the crowd and she'll we be your it. kind of metronome all night. And you go back, Oh, you like that one, Beth? Oh, Beth like that one, everyone. Da, da, da. <laughs> so you've like added another character to the show. So I definitely can see how that is important in Zoom world where literally everyone almost feels like that anonymous audience member, especially when you're not on camera and you are just part of the audience in one of these crowds. And it's like, you're not mic'd. You're going to hear everyone in the world coughing and instead of, yeah, it's, it's insanity. But those are some good, Those are some salient tips. And again, it's not teaching people how to be funny. That is totally up to you. It is, it's the little things like if you went and they told you to take the microphone stand and move it to the other side of the stage. It's literally that kind of stuff, but redone for everyone living in a digital quarantine nightmare. So... <laughs> way, way to make the nightmare a little less rough. Yeah. So h- how about this? If your daughter, who is hilarious, by the way, gets a little older and says, hey, dad, I think I want to be a stand-up comedian. What do you think?
1: I'll absolutely support her. I'll absolutely support her. Mm. I will. Yeah. With some caveats. <laughs> you uh, get, you'll be you get,
0: Giving her a couple uh, lessons on her first day out
1: i'll be I'll be sitting in the crowd almost every time, right <laughs> hovering, making sure I know where she is, where she's going out. But yes, I would absolutely support that. because I think the skills that you and I and most comedians have on stage, and I guess this is the the whole reason for your podcast here, it's going to translate to something. whether it's success as a stand-up comedian, whether it's learning how to make people laugh, whether it's something that translates to something future in your career. I don't think that there's anything wrong with being able to get up in front of a room, communicate, speak authentically. Um, and, and, and again, I do want to say what a gift and what uh, an honor it is to be able to stand in front of a room, grab a mic, and make people laugh, right? Whether we're doing it at Pitch Lab or whether you're a professional comedian that gets to have their own Netflix special or, you know, you're a podcast where you get a few minutes of someone's time on headbuds um you know what a gift to be able to do that and and to share that because some people go their whole lives not feeling listened to and uh it's definitely a route it's definitely a a solid route
0: well damn i could not think of a more fitting constructive end to the podcast today what a way to bookend it tie a little bow on it and send it Disinfect it and then send it off to someone you <laughs> love. Um, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for, for making the time, the precious time to hang out, Jay.
1: My pleasure. Awesome to see you, my friend. And uh, we'll catch up on the other side of this. Yes, we sure will. Give my best to the fam. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening.